joining us, Peter Dunn. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the Tins. How are you both? Good, good. Good. So, Peter, um, with the election coming up, there are people who are wondering about whether, you know, the tactics of, of voting and whether it's worth giving your vote to a party who are wallowing around 1%. What are your thoughts about that? Because, of, you know, you've, you've been the leader been of a... Yep. Yep. Yeah, been there, well, done that. It's a, it's a very funny thing. My view is if you, if you think a party is worth supporting, you ought yep. to support it. I've lost count of the number of times people said to me, Oh, I'd quite like to have voted for your party, but I just didn't think you were going to make it. And I would say to them in return, well, that ensured we didn't make it, didn't it? You know, it's all very well saying you're not going to get there, so I won't vote for you. Well, of course, if you don't vote for us, you won't get there. So my view is if you support what a party stands for and you believe it strongly enough, vote for it. In this, in this year's election, Peter, I've counted what I believe is 17 parties on the ballot. Now, I'm not sure if the McGillicuddy Sirius are no longer there. Uh, no offence to McGillicuddy Sirius if, if they are there. Um, but the polls suggest <laughs> that what's most likely to happen is that four parties will be there after this election. So with 17, aren't those people who may be thinking about those 13 other parties in danger of wasting their vote? Yeah, they are, yes, absolutely. But then that's their democratic right. If they, as I say, if they believe strongly enough on what a party stands for, they ought to vote for it. Because if, if, if they don't, then they, then they just lessen that party's chances of getting anywhere near the threshold. In reality, of course, as you say, most of those votes are going to be wasted. Probably could be sort of 8 or 9% of the total. But that's a democracy, just as those people who choose not to vote are doing something their perfect right, or those that choose to go and sort of draw a line across the ballot paper and write you know, none of the above on it. That's the democratic right as well. What do we actually see happen when it comes to the polling pre-election and the actual results for those smaller parties? Because I would imagine that if you were being polled by Colmar Brunton and you liked United Future, or, and you, you, you might say it, but then when it came to the... If, if the polls had indicated that that particular party was around 1% or 2%, you might vote differently. Do we have any evidence that people actually oscillate in that way between polls and election day? People certainly like to back a winner. So that if, you, if you're voting for party X and it's on you know, 2% and I'm voting for party Y and it's on 42%, uh, you're probably more likely to gravitate towards party Y because we all like to be on the winning side. But one of the things that's funny about polls is, you know, I can never get to the bottom of this, but the number of times people, people used to ring me and say, like, we had a poll last night, and I said I named your party, but they said oh, I was not on my list. Really? Now, the pollsters, you know, yeah, oh, that's interesting. Now, the pollsters deny that, but I heard that too often over the years. That you know, you you, you had the big parties, sort of National Labor, uh, maybe the Greens, New Zealand First, and then everyone else was sort of other. So you had to actually, rather than say, yeah, I'll stop at that box, you had to actually say, no, I'd vote for so and so, and then they would say, oh, I don't have them on my list. Back- I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I heard it too often from too many different people over the years to think it was just a passing sort of comment. Back to what you were saying before, do you think that the 5% threshold should be lower? You were talking about it's all for democracy and, and things that are right for democracy, even not voting, which I found interesting. But with that in mind, should the threshold be lower? Yes, I think we should go back to what the Royal Commission all those years ago recommended, a 4% threshold and the one-seat rule. Uh, what we've tended to do over the years is, is try and shift the thresholds upwards. All that does is make it more difficult for people to get their political views represented. So I think 4% plus the one-seat rule is not a bad balance, and I think that's what we should have. 
Of course, the, the, the commission you re, re, uh, referred to, that also re, uh, recommended abolishing the Māori seats as well, wasn't, didn't it, and reducing the number of MPs to 100. So we, that, that hasn't yeah, been well, a successful commission. I don't think they um, recommended the reduction of the number of MPs. They certainly recommended abolishing the Māori, the Māori seats. Um, mm. And I think that you know that's obviously a live debate in the sense that uh, the time will come when the the, the numbers are such after the annual, or not the annual, but the triennial reviews that there won't be the demand. But I think that's something that will work itself out over time. I just want to play you something. Here's Judith Collins explaining during the week that she is, in fact, a Christian. And this was, in fact, today, there was also a photo of her praying on her knees at an empty church. Uh, and for a lot of people, they were going, hang on, hang on. She's been in the public eye for a couple of decades. This is the first we've heard. Have a listen. If you look at my maiden speech 18 years ago, you'll see that right then and there, I declared that I believe in God. I still do. I pray every day. So she prayed before voting in the church. And Peter Dunn, United Future was sometimes regarded as kind of a, a subtly Christian party. What's your reaction to the frequent mentions now of Judith Collins' faith? Well, again, she's got every right to her faith. And what I find a wee bit surprising is that we're only learning of this in the last few days. Um, she's entitled to her private beliefs, and I don't think we can um, object to those. But but the fact that she's now in the debate last week two or three times and a couple of other public references since, and this morning's effort, um, making it more overt, suggests strongly to me that she's pitching out to the, the new Conservative Party voters uh, because that's where the rump of the old Christian right ended up, to try and peel off some votes for them. Maybe she feels that they're getting um, too strong. I don't know whether that's so. Or whether she's worried about the vote she's losing to act, so she's got to pull back some votes on the right from somewhere else. But it does seem to me to be suddenly far more overt in her declaration than has been at any point in her previous uh, previously in her political career. Oh, it's, it's a cynical world, isn't it, Peter? I mean, that photo uh, op, I thought, actually could have been used by... Um, I'm not sure if it was the smartest move because it in, invites the, the cartoon sort of bubble saying, please, please, please let me win. <laughs> Seeking inspiration, all those sorts of things, yes. Look, as I say, she's entitled to her personal faith, if that's her, if that's her view. But it just does strike me as a, a wee bit odd that you, you draw it out to attention at this time mm. in the way that she has done. I mean, how do you feel about the, whole, the role of religion in politics anyway? Because I, I always feel a little uncomfortable that... Uh, I, I don't mind knowing about people's values, but there are so many different interpretations of everyone's individual Christianity. I, I, I must say, it makes me a little squ squeamish when I suddenly see her rolling it out. Yeah, look, I think that people's religious views are their own business. Uh, they, obviously, whether they be Christian or Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, they will be guided by those founding principles of those religions. They, they've got every right to try and live according to those values. But I think they are fundamentally their own business. The Prime Minister said that a full trans-Tasman travel bubble, trouble, travel bubble, right, yes. oh gosh, uh, could be at least a month <laughs> away. The reason being is that New Zealand's criteria is for 28 days without community transmission, and New South Wales has not had that. Um, this is not ruling it out. It just means until they have 28 days, we're not going to have a reciprocal arrangement with Australia. Uh, what's your take on that, Peter, whether this is the right sort of cautious approach? Well, I think there's a bit of a parallel here between the way the Australian government has reacted, has acted in this instance and some of the stuff going on uh, between the, the Sanzar rugby unions. It looks like we're being pushed around by the Australians. Uh, 
Scott Morrison's obviously decided that he wants to open up the Australian uh, market, uh, some of the market, to, to try and get the tourist dollar coming back in. Uh, New Zealand's the most ready source of that. So, hey, presto, we'll um, you know, open, up the, open up the border. The problem is, who's going to go to Australia knowing they can enter Australia quarantine-free, but are then going to have to come back and spend 14 days in quarantine at their own expense for New Zealand once they complete their trip? It's a one-way ticket, and I just don't think it's going to work until we have reciprocity on both sides. And I think what Australia is doing is pitching to its own domestic audience yet again, which is, again, perfectly proper for it to do, and sort of saying, well, New Zealand's the problem, not us. You see, I, I just don't see New Zealanders doing this. I, I had a conversation with somebody no, in the right. office who, who thought completely differently. They were like, no, no, wealthy New Zealanders, mortgage-free, um, kids moved out of home, New Zealanders will be looking at booking trips. I was like, but no, you, you still don't, you don't get to choose your hotel when you come back to New Zealand. Now, no offence to the Sudima and Rotorua, yeah. you might be shipped off to the Sudima and Rotorua on return. By the way, you pay for that. I just don't see people doing it. No, but I, I think it's more I, about the 28 days, isn't it? Yeah, some some will because they they're in a position to, but I, I think it will be a minority. And as I th- as I say, I think this is more Scott Morrison trying to throw a sop to his own domestic tourism industry by saying, "Well, we're making it possible. The fact that the New Zealanders won't come is their problem. You know, they should talk to their government about it." Now, I think that if we go to move to a point where you've got that twenty eight day requirement to be achieved, and that's that 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 is met, and we can have quarantine free entry on both sides fair enough but at the moment it looks like a bit of a one-way street and uh, i suspect new zealanders will say well i'm staying home so i can sort of go and come back safely peter dunn former leader of united future political commentator frequent guest on the weekend collective and the man who extended daylight saving thank you so much for <laughs> your time. <laughs> I, I waited until the end to mention it beautiful yes, sunshine did. today and peter a glorious day too yes absolutely right around the world there you go there you go thanks thanks to peter thanks dunn indeed.